This morning, we're going to be uh, taking a look at Acts chapter 13, and we're going to be and uh, we're going to be taking a look at Acts 13, starting at about verse 13 or so, and going to the end of the chapter. I think it's about verse 52. So there's a lot of verses, but you're going to have to stick with me here. But first, before we go there, we're going to take a look at a map of really the Mediterranean area, because you know I know that for some of you. Younger people, you just don't have an awareness of where places are in the world, maybe. Maybe there's some of you older people that don't know either. But the bottom line is, we're talking about this area of the world. Uh, We summered in Greece this year, so here's Greece. And of course, North Africa, uh, Northeast Africa, and Egypt over here. And there's Jordan, where I think some of you know I worked for a little while, 10 years ago. And uh, all over the place. So we're talking about this part of the world. And so right here is Jerusalem, and this morning we're going to take a look at um, this piece of scripture from Acts 13, and we're going to take a look at Paul and his first journey, and you know, the historians call it a missionary journey, and to be honest, I don't like the term. I don't like the term a missionary journey because of the context in which we live today, because when you think of missionary, you think of somebody who... A church collects a bunch of money for and sends them out and sends them off into the far-flung jungles of Borneo somewhere and they're, they're preaching the gospel. But the, big quest, the bigger question that I would have with all that, and there's not that there's anything wrong with that, to quote Jerry Seinfeld, not that there's anything wrong with that, but my big question is, what do missionaries build? What do they build? And so... I think Paul really, instead of calling it his first missionary journey, we should call it his first church planting journey because that's what he did. He was about planting churches. When he received, you know, when, when, when uh, he was converted, when Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus, he was challenged with the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the way that Paul interpreted that was to plant churches. He planted churches. That's what he did. He preached the gospel. As a result, people came in line with understanding who this great father was that we worshipped this morning. They understood the freedom that comes there. And the natural outgrowth of that was to develop community in the form of churches. And that's what Paul did. And so what he did was he uh, left this place called Antioch up here in Syria. And uh, last week, Joe, uh, when Joe preached, He was talking about Paul on Cyprus, and we're going to skip the first bit of chapter 13, but he spent some time in Paphos down here in Cyprus, and then he crossed over to Perga, and then went from here up to this other place, this other Antioch, in this region called Pisidia, and it's in the region known as Galatia. And so that's where we are this morning, is we're going to be looking at a story that took place in Sidian Antioch is what it's called. We're going to take a look at a story that's there. So we're going to work through the scripture. There's a lot of scripture here, but we're going to work through it. And um, we're going to notice right off, if you're familiar with Peter, when he got out there in Acts chapter 2, and he preached at Pentecost, and he preached the truth of the history of God in, you know, leading to Jesus, you're going to notice some similarities with that preach that he did and with what Paul did here. And so we're going to take a look at the scripture. So Acts 
13. I have it on the overhead here. Hopefully it's all there. Yep. And we're going we're gonna to work through it together. So starting at verse 13, it said, Paul, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, just a bit of an aside. We're talking about John Mark here. Mark, the writer of the gospel, he left them at this point. And this is the first reference in Acts where instead of it saying Barnabas and Paul, we're talking about Paul and his companions. You have to ask yourself a question. Well, what happened to Barnabas? How come he doesn't get the top billing anymore? And I believe it's because there was an emerging anointing or emerging blessing from God on Paul to do the work apostolically of one sent to build churches. And Barnabas was, I think, quite happy to come in as a second because there was an anointing on Paul to do what he was called to do. Now, different historians, different biblical scholars would say that probably John Mark, because he was very close to Barnabas, it could have been that he wasn't happy with the role reversal. It also could have been that he had sore feet and didn't want to climb into the mountain regions of of, uh, Antioch, but some of the historians think that that's a possibility. But nevertheless, if if you read quickly, you'll miss it. John left them, returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And this area is in Galatia, and you've got to know this too, that Paul... He was traveling through. He stopped here in Galatia. And three or four months later, guess what he did? He wrote the letter to who? The Galatians. All right? It'll kind of come together as we move forward. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And so they went into the place where the Jews worshipped. And Paul, being a Jew, was accepted. In fact, he would have had some kind of reputation. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So in this area of of Antioch, there was a a rather small Jewish community in really what was predominantly a non-Jew or what we call a Gentile. Another word for Gentile. Is there anybody here who's Jewish? You're a Jew. If you're not a Jew, guess what? You fall into this broad sweep called Gentile. We're all Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. In this region, in Antioch, there was a small Jewish community. They met in the synagogue, and it was predominantly Gentile. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And so in this synagogue were Jews, as well as Gentiles, who were attracted to the Jewish faith. They were attracted to the Jewish faith, faith because they understood and recognized that God was real and they were they were drawn and I believe they were drawn by the spirit of God into the synagogue because like I said God is real and they knew there was something to this and so they're drawn into the synagogue and they're there so men of Israel would be the Jews and you who fear God would be the Gentile converts or the Gentile those who are interested in the Jewish faith the God, uh, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And so after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet came along. So what Paul's doing is he stands up and he starts to recount Jewish history. He starts to make connections for these people because Paul has an intent. The question went through my mind reading this. Do you think, Gary, that the Jewish leaders of the synagogue knew what was coming? That's an easy answer. No, I don't think they knew what was coming. Because if they knew what was coming, I think they would have probably not asked him to speak. And so he continues on. He jumps to the main purpose of the story. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So he's already recounted about Israel being in captivity in Egypt, talking about being freed by Moses, going through the Red Sea. We heard about that this morning. He's making reference to it here. They come out, they cross the Red Sea, they're freed. They go into what was called the promised land. God promises them this this space. They destroy basically seven nations. And then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul. So the people say, God, we need a king. Who's going to lead us? They asked for Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. He put up with him in the wilderness. Oh, sorry, I missed my space. And when he uh, removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king. So after Saul came David, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. So he fast forwards through Jewish history to David. And here he jumps to the main purpose of the story to show how God's activity in history is climaxing in Jesus. Because he's going to make a jump here from David, this king of Israel, the greatest king of Israel. He's going to make a jump from him and show how Jesus was a direct descendant of David. I just want to make sure that my overhead matches up with what I have here. Am I good so far? We're good. Okay. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. So from David's offspring, Jesus is born hundreds of years later. Jesus, as he promised, before his coming, John the Baptist had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not Jesus, John the Baptist said. I'm not him. Because everybody was flocking to him and he was asking them to repent because someone greater than him was coming. He says, Who, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So again, he's a He stops for a moment and he addresses the Jews. He addresses the Gentiles. He says, this is important, folks. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. So in verse 27, he says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. So in other words, you go every Saturday to the synagogue 
and this stuff's read. They read the prophets every week. And guess what, guys? You guys, your leaders, didn't recognize Jesus for who he was. Did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So the Jewish leaders condemned Jesus. And though they found him in no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. You see, the Jews would have recognized the reference that Paul makes here to the tree. Because he's referring to, he's referring to Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament, the prophecy that was about Jesus. Cursed, or cursed, is anyone who what? Hangs from a tree. And so they're starting to clue in here that they may not, the leaders particularly, may not be too crazy about what's coming. They're starting to get it now. But God raised him from the dead, Jesus. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to his people. And so Paul's making reference here. He says, you know what? Jesus was raised from the dead. And there's all kinds of people that are still alive that saw Jesus, heard Jesus, touched Jesus. They're still around. And they would have no refutation of that. They couldn't refute it because they knew, they heard about Jesus. They would have known that this is true. And so verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that is to the descendants going back hundreds of years, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, the Jews, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. And so Notice that what he does is he always refers to the Old Testament. He brings the history books and the prophecies about Jesus written hundreds of years earlier. He brings them into play. And it says this in the Psalms. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it's for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So he's telling the Jews, you know what, guys? David was a great king. David was a great king. But guess what? He decomposed in the ground. He talks about corruption. That's what we're talking about. He decomposed in the ground. But Jesus, he didn't experience that decomposition because he's risen. He's risen from the dead. He didn't decay in the ground. He didn't decay in the tomb. He was there for three days And he was raised from the dead. I think I need to turn my page. You should tell me. That would help me. Just kidding. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, verse 38, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone, and when he says the word everyone, He means everyone. He means Jews. He means non-Jews. In other words, he means the Gentiles that are sitting there. And so he starts to lay out the plan of salvation is for everybody through Jesus. Who believes is anybody who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
So automatically right here, he makes the switch and he says, you know what, folks? The law of Moses, in other words, following the law cannot save you. It cannot draw you any closer to God at all. The law is powerless to do anything for you. So Paul's major themes that you see all through the New Testament in his letters, the letters to the Galatians, Romans, and so on, belief, in other words, believe in Jesus, justification, in other words, if we believe in Jesus, we are justified, we're counted righteous before God. He talks about the powerlessness of the law here. Those are the major themes that Paul always talks about. He brings them into this speech, really, this recounting of Jewish history. Beware, therefore, lest what it was said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so again, another scripture, he's referring to the prophet Habakkuk. And Habakkuk basically says this in this prophecy. He says, if you don't believe, if you don't respond to the Savior, you're in judgment. And folks, judgment is real. There is a judgment. So Paul is showing how God systematically kept unfolding his purposes until it reached its climax in Jesus. So in verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Can you imagine? The people, all of them, the Jews and the Gentiles, as they were leaving, Paul left them wanting for more. And he says, they're they're begging him for more. They're begging him for more. And after, and so they, they, uh, they leave, and after the meeting of the synagogue, when it broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. And so they're following them after the meeting. And so a week later, you know, they're urging them, you know, Paul and Barnabas are urging them to continue in the grace of God because they preach the grace of God, that it's free, that you can't, you can't achieve salvation by following the law. You can only achieve salvation by receiving the free gift of Jesus. And that's what he was saying. They were begging to hear this. They were begging to hear more. And you can just imagine that over the next week, they would have been spending time with the people explaining about the grace of God. And don't you know that word would have spread in the city? Word would have spread in the city. There's something going on at the synagogue. It was frequented by some Gentiles. But look what happens next. And so in verse um, 43 and onwards, I guess we're on 44 now, the next Sabbath, so the next week, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. How would you deal with that? How would you deal with that? It was a, this is a fairly large city. The whole city shows up to hear the word of the Lord. Word had spread. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If the whole city gathered here, if they, if they were beating down our door and they were outside because they wanted to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that there was freedom from, from the, the, basically the entrapment of the world system, I think we'd be a little overwhelmed. But notice the response of the Jewish leaders. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? With joy? Oh, no filled with jealousy, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So 
we immediately see that grace is the ultimate threat to legalism, to insecure leadership, and those who hold on to power and control. The leadership. They were insecure. They couldn't handle it. It was a threat to their power base. Sounds familiar. It sounds like Jesus all over again, right? Because that's what he did. He got people angry at him. Because he was threatening their power base. Nothing much has changed. Here we are in Galatia. Nothing much has changed at all. And so Paul and Barnabas kept quiet. No. What did they do? They spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so, he says, fair enough. If you're going to reject the truth of Jesus because you're tied to the law and you're jealous, then we're going to preach the same message of freedom to the Gentiles because they don't have that same baggage. And they started, obviously, to be converted in great numbers. And it's in this chapter earlier on, we didn't read it, but it's in this chapter that Saul's name changed to Paul because he was becoming all things to all people. There was more of a Roman occupation in these areas and more Gentile people, and they would relate more to the name Paul. And so his name is called Paul. So um, he says, we're, we're turning uh, to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so once again, from Isaiah 49, another scripture. This time, a scripture saying, guess what? This was foretold way back when. I'm turning to the Gentiles. My own people reject my son Jesus. I'll turn to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. And when... Here we go. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord... As many, and, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And so these Gentiles were overjoyed that Paul would turn to them. And they were receiving, and basically it said glorifying the word of the Lord. They were holding, they valued the word that had been preached to them. They were bring, being brought in to understand who Jesus was. But the Jews, of course the Jews, now we're back to the Jews again. The Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. I ask the question, well, why is it, why did they even mention devout women of high standing? Anyway, I come to find out that the women of high standing in the city were attracted to the Jewish religion, many of them, and... That was the end that they had in order to spread the corruption about Paul and the, wor- and the words of Jesus. They used those people because they were attracted to Judaism, and, uh, but they weren't, they weren't really responding. At least some of them weren't responding to the message about Jesus. And it says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. In verse 52, and the disciples, and the disciples we're filled with joy. And when we're talking about the disciples, we're not talking about Paul and Barnabas here. We're talking about the disciples in Antioch. They were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. 
and with the Holy Spirit, you've got to ask yourself the question, what did that look like? Right, Penny? What did that look what, Why would they even put that in there? They were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, how would they know they were filled with the Holy Spirit? They, were, they responded to the message of Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that came upon the believers in, at Pentecost obviously had come upon them, and there were evidences of the Holy Spirit's filling them, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, more than likely in various supernatural ways. They had to have been prophesying. They had to have been probably speaking in tongues and interpreting that. They probably were seeing miracles happen. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy. And so there were evidences of His presence. You should know that Paul returned, and if you read a little bit later on in Acts, I think Acts chapter 14 or maybe 15, Paul on his way back drops back into Antioch because he's got a church now. He's got a church that's growing, a growing church, probably a fairly large church that's growing. So he makes actually a number of visits back to Antioch, this city in Antioch. He makes a few more visits on his next journeys. He always stops through. He visited the churches. And what he was about doing, and people say, well, you know what, the church doesn't need, doesn't need leadership. It's very organic. And we just meet in homes, and there's no real leaders. What Paul was about was setting elders in place in the churches. If you read a little bit later on in Acts chapter 14, that's what he was doing. He was paying attention to what the Holy Spirit was saying. And as a builder, he was coming into the church, and he was recognizing by spending time with them, he would recognize who it was that God had his hand on, and he was appointing them and assisting them in appointing elders and leaders in the churches. And that's what he was about. That's what he was doing. Big question is, what does all this have to do with us anyway? We just read a fairly massive piece of scripture. What does all this have to do with us anyway? Well, it has to do with calling. And there's three things that I'm going to quickly go through that will reference it relating to this scripture. And we're going to take a look primarily from about 38 down. First of all, we're called to proclaim a grace message in the power of the Spirit. That's what we're called to do, folks, as a church. We're called to proclaim the grace message in the presence and power of the Spirit. And in no particular order, I feel that God is calling us as a meeting place church and as a family of churches, God is calling us in no particular order, I think, in this unique time in Canada in 2011, he's calling us, A, to the nominal believer. To the nominal believer. You know that there are nominal believers, there are Christians who I think are Christians, but they don't have the fire of grace in their life to understand what it is that God has called them to do. There are many of those around. They Oh, I've accepted Christ to come into my life. But it's kind of stopped there. And their life is in a bit of a tailspin. They, they don't have any understanding of what it means to be part of the church. They don't understand um, that God has actually freed them from the law. Because really, the law was never intended nor capable of setting people free. And so I know a lot of Christians who are Christians. They've accepted Christ to come into their life. But they have a very 
poor understanding of grace. And they feel that they have to pay God back somehow. And they live their life in this unending cycle of frustration. It says in Galatians chapter 3, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under curse. And so if, if as a Christian, you're finding that things are really, really not going too good for you, and you're frustrated, it could be because you're trying to please God by your works. When the actual message of grace is, you don't have to do that. That's kind of the definition of insanity, is to try to do something over and over again that doesn't work, figuring it's going to work. You get the same result all the time. It's frustration. So to the nominal believer, perhaps there's some of you here this morning. Perhaps there's some of you, you know what, you grew up in the church, you asked Christ to come into your life when you were young, and you've been kind of living this up and down and all around, being tossed around by the waves that come at you in life. And you're wondering, how is it that I can be right with God? Well, the message is, if you've accepted Christ to come into your life, you are right with God. And you need to let the life of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit flow through your life, and you need to find out that God has apportioned the church, and for you to be part of a church community that you can be accountable to and with so that you can move forward in your life together because God never intended for you as a Christian to be alone. Does that make sense? I think it does. We're not intended to be alone. Try to live your life on your own, it's going to be frustration. I remember meeting a person once, and they told me, that it was just them and God. And I said, so define that for me. How does that work for you? And uh, she says, well, I, I get my journal and my Bible, and I go sit under a tree uh, near uh, Officer Square. And I thought, wow, like, what do you do when it's cold? Like, you can't make it on your own. And she was very content to do that. But on the other side of the coin... Her life was in turmoil because she wasn't tied to community. She wasn't tied to people because we love God and God gives us this wonderful community we call the church where a lot of us really have a lot of problems, but we get to work it out together. So it rescues us from nominalism. It rescues us from being cold and confused as a Christian. Secondly, we are called to Christians who are legitimately hungering for a true expression of the gospel. There are Christians in this nation who are in churches where the gospel isn't being preached, that there's no freedom, that there's no biblical truth being spoken about at any time, and the thought of community is basically centered around a meeting on Sunday, and that's it. And there are some Christians who say, you know what, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And to quote the eminent theologian Kevin Calhoun, he says this, and I quote, because I heard him say it again last week. I've been waiting 30 years for this. I've been waiting 30 years to be part of a church like this. I've been waiting 30 years to be in a church community where there's mutual accountability, interdependence, the power of the Spirit, the message of grace. I've waited 30 years for this. And I know many of you could have that same testimony. You could say, 
I waited a long time for this. I had wind shaking his head. Yeah, I understand. See, there are many believers in this nation that God is calling out of those places. But not to be too difficult on those churches, there are even indeed entire church communities that are saying, we need help. We need to know what to do. How do we build? How do we? They hear the message of grace. They hear that there's another way. Guess what, folks? There are people coming to us. Us! Joe Crummy, come on. Joe Crummy is a phys ed teacher, for goodness sake. Right? They're coming to Gary Glenn, who watches birds and collects maps. They've got to be desperate. And they're saying, would you help us build church? Folks, we're not experts. But what we have been given, guess what we'll do? We will give away. And we do it with humility. But not only are there individuals, there are churches. And there are churches that are coming and saying, can you help us? Churches where they are desiring and knowing that there's more. There's more in terms of the power of the Spirit. There's more in terms of the truth of the gospel. And they need to have help. Well, guess what? God is putting us into that situation where he's called us to proclaim grace in the power of the Spirit. And lastly, but certainly not most importantly, or at least, you know, importantly, it's the lost. We've got a lot of people there who don't know Jesus. Don't know. Don't know anything. There's probably people in the room that don't have, it's like, you know what, I've never been in church in my life. Well, welcome. If you've never been in church in your life. I've never, I've never really even heard about this God who stepped out of heaven, gave us Jesus, died on the cross. What's all that about? And if you're sitting here this morning trying to add it all up in your head and say, it's totally confusing and I don't know, but I kind of like it. Well, you're in good company. Because many of us were in that boat too. God has a plan for your life. Just as Paul recounted the history of the Jews, the linear history, focusing on Jesus as the climax of history, guess what? You have history too. You have your own personal history. You have a history that goes back however many years you've been born. And your history, God has had his eye on and his hand on, and here you are today. And the message for you today is that there is a Jesus who loves you, that gave himself for you, so you could have a relationship with this God who you heard about, and it's absolutely true. It's amazing. It's a freeing message. If you're living your life and you feel like you're a squirrel on a wheel, wondering what's the purpose. Is it that I amass as much stuff as I can and then I win? Is it I commit myself to my profession and at the end of the day I retire, then what? God has a plan for your life that takes all of that into into account. And he has something for you that's bigger than you could ever imagine or ask for. He's always been, God has always been intent. And I wrote this yesterday and I thought, I just was trying to put into words. And I just, this, I, I came up with this. God has always been intent on building grace-based communities which embrace the power of the Spirit, founded on the truth of the Word of God with godly, called, and submitted leadership devoted to the outward mission of Jesus. That's what he's about. That's what he wants us to do. 
He's always been intent on it. That's been the plan from the very beginning. Building grace-based communities like this one, where we put up with each other and we work through the stuff together. Embracing the power of the Spirit, where we say, you know what? God is other, we're not, and He's supernatural, and He moves in our lives. And we hold the Word of God as sacred. And we have godly called, submitted leadership. You know what? It's hard for me to stand here today and say that I'm godly. You know why? Because everything in my flesh would say, you're not godly, Gary. You're not righteous, Gary. You're not holy. But the Word of God, which I believe, says the following, that I'm righteous, I'm holy, and I'm redeemed. And it's not because of how good I am. It's not about all the things I've done that are so wonderful, because those of you who know me know that I've got all kinds of issues. But what it is, is that I trust in what God has done in my life. And I seek to submit myself to others and to God himself in leading. Secondly and quickly, we're called to be faithful and to be submitted to the word of God. God's word is the truth. It holds up to all scrutiny. It holds up to scrutiny. So we're called to hold it true. Andrew Wilson, who's been visited us with before, you'd be wise to look at that website. Excellent stuff there. Here's what he says. I think I know what the biggest theological debate of the next 20 years is going to be about. It doesn't sound very exciting, but fundamentally, it's the issue that drives all the others. It's the question of the doctrine of Scripture, how we read, understand, and apply the Bible. That's the thing. In this portion of Scripture, the Gentiles took the Jews to school because they assented to the authority of the Word of God more effectively, more truthfully than the Jews themselves who were God's chosen people. They schooled them. They believed the word, made it authoritative in their life. They didn't just become Christians to fix their problems. But you know what? God helps us with our problems. I'm not going to belittle that. But the word of God trumped their experience of life. The word of God was always first. I couldn't believe it. This is why I can believe it. A Christian leader gets on TV this week and a, and a guy writes in and he wants advice for his life. And he says, you know what? My wife has Alzheimer's and she can't remember a thing. What should I do? I'm tempted to go out with another woman. I'm tempted. I'm not feeling fulfilled sexually. What am I supposed to do? And this Christian leader advised him on national TV, who has some amount of influence, unfortunately. And he said, you know what? In a way, she is dead. In a way, she is dead. And because of that, mentally speaking, she is dead. I would say you're free to divorce her and to seek your way. Where is the truth and the authority of the word of God? And this is a national leader. Don't get me started. I guess I already have. See, folks, we have a truth. When we put our stock in the word of God, we have a truth that weathers the storms of life. It weathers the storms of life. Thirdly, we're called to go. We're called to go. Another great theologian that I know, Angela Crummy. 
we're called to go. All of us are called to go. All of us. The truth spreads by those who are convinced by it. Are you convinced of the truth of the word of God? Are you convinced of what God's doing in your life? Guess what? If you are, then you're called to go. You're called to do what God, through Jesus Christ, said. Spread the gospel. You're called to go. Paul, apostolically, was a gospel spreader. Reflected in his planning of new churches. He did so without care of his temporal needs. He knew God would take care of him. He did it with intent. Planted churches with effectual leadership. He did it. Thankfully, the filling of the Holy Spirit always has a missional motive at at its core. The motive of the Spirit, he says, go. If you're filled with the Spirit, you can't help but be missional. Truly, if we submit ourselves to the Word of God, you're going to be committed to go. That's the way it is. The Gentiles and saved Jews did what came naturally to them. They spread the joy of salvation in their region, it says. Other churches were planted through their efforts. It was, it was a replicating thing. They replicated what Paul had started. And Paul kept coming to them. And he kept giving the elders advice. And don't you know that those churches planted churches and those churches planted churches and planted churches. That's what they did. That's how the gospel is spread. And finally, it brings great supernatural joy. It brings the joy that only the Holy Spirit can do when we go. I love being with Reese and Sarah Scott last week. Here they are uprooting their family from London. Beautiful home. Great job. You'd think, they got it made. They're living in central London. They've got everything they could ever have. Boom, we're going to Vancouver. We're going to plant a church. We're going to know where there's nothing. If you spend any time with them, would you say that they were filled with joy and excitement about doing what they were doing? It was because of the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You see, at the meeting place, this is happening. This is what we're about. We're going to see this take place. In fact, we are seeing it take place. There's much to do in the region, the nation, in the world, and God is orchestrating the pieces together. He's doing it. He's the one that's putting it all together. And so you say, well, I don't know if I should go. Where should I go? Well, you know what? We're all called to go, but the going is sometimes what? The going is sometimes in the staying. Because we have to shore things up here to have a good base. And so there's some of you that are never going to go anywhere else but here. But there's a lot of exciting things that we're going to be doing. We've resurrected the talk of a building. Folks, we need your input. We need your prayers in coming up with, okay, God, we're not going to run away from the idea that you want us to have a permanent place to meet. A multi-purpose building where we can do all kinds of different things Basically, 24-7, you have a role to play in that. That is going. You're going when you do that. We need to stick ramparts or flags on the, on the turret. We're, we, Don and I were talking about yesterday. You know what? It's time we had a conference. It's time that we had someone like Terry Virgo come. It's time that we were able to, from our base in Fredericton, to be able to do something special for our region. I think, don't you? I think so. Well, guess what? That's going. That's going, folks. Let's stand.
Father, we just thank you for this morning. Time is gone. But God, you love us. You care about us. You've called us. You've called us to preach grace. You've called us to preach the freedom in Jesus. You've called us to do that, Lord. You've called us to many things. You've called us to go. You've called us to stay in the going. Father, would you help us? Would you fill us? Would you give us inspiration by your spirit? Lord, would you pull us together as a community? We thank you, God, that you are the one that we worship. You're real. You're true. Your word is sacred. You're, we're called to observe your word and to, and to glorify you in your word. We thank you, God. Would you help us as the Meeting Place Church as we move forward? I just feel like God is saying this morning, folks, you are moving forward in me. You are moving forward in me. There is going in the staying. There's also going in the going. There's some of you here that have never even considered about the going, but God wants you to know that and I'm tapping you on your shoulder. Be ready because I'm calling you to go. And you don't know it yet. There's some of you that have been uh, sitting too long. And God is saying, you know what? There's some staying going that you're going to be participating in. They're going to rejuvenate, excite, and move you into a new phase of your life. There are some of you here this morning that you need to hear this, that in the staying, there's going to be a lot of going in your life. You're going to stay, but you're going to be reflecting the attitude of the spreading of the gospel, and God is going to give you new revelation in that. So, Father, this morning, we say we're with you together on this mission. Amen.